we are starting a new series today called More Than Enough. And I think if we are honest, we would say that that concept of enough can be at times this elusive idea. Now, you may go to a restaurant and you may eat a large, full meal. And the waiter comes to you at the end of the meal and says, can I bring you anything else? And you will say, no, I'm good. I'm full. I've had enough. And then you go home and a couple hours later, you find yourself at the freezer reaching for a carton of ice cream. And earlier you said you were full, that you had enough. But what you meant was, I have temporarily had enough. I'm not finally and fully satisfied by this meal. But in this moment, I've had enough. But later I'll want even more. This idea of enough can be just this elusive concept that we never quite achieve. A hundred years ago, there was an oil tycoon named J. Paul Getty, very wealthy man. He was sort of the Jeff Bezos of his day. And J. Paul Getty was once asked by a reporter, Mr. Getty, how much money does someone need for it to be enough? And Mr. Getty thought about the question and he said, one dollar more. I think that's true. We will say at times, I've got enough if I could just get that raise. I'll have enough if my investments would just do a little bit better, then I will have enough. And then we get the raise, we get the promotion, or our investments pay off, and we go, well, really, it's just a little bit more. It seems at times that enough can be like this elusive mirage in the desert. It's just over the next hill. It's just over the horizon. If I can just get to that place, I'll have enough. But we never quite get there. Every time we get to where we think we need to be, then it's off in the distance again. It's over the next hill. It's just over the horizon again. In fact, I bet that you have said some of these phrases in your life Because I have said some of these phrases in my life. Things like, when I graduate from high school, then I'll have freedom. I can go to college and I'll have freedom and I'll have enough freedom and then I'll be happy. Or, well, I'm here, but when I graduate from college, then I'll be able to get a job and I'll have money, enough money, my own money, you know, and then I'll be happy because I finally have a job. Or then you get the job and you say, well, it's not enough. But when I get a promotion and I get that raise and I get more money, then it will be enough and I'll finally be happy. Or when I get married, then my relationship tank will be filled and I'll have enough and I'll be satisfied and happy in life. And that doesn't do it. So when I have kids, once I have kids, my relationship tank will really be filled then I'll have enough, then I'll be happy. And then you say, when the kids finally leave the house and I can get freedom back and enough freedom, you know, then I'll be happy. And then we say, well, once I retire and I'm no longer bound to this job and I've got freedom and I can do what I want, then I'll be happy. And it seems that enough can be like that mythical pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. It's, it's there. I can almost see it. I can almost get it, but, but just, just not quite. And we never find ourselves saying, okay, I've got it. I've got enough. Now, there is a very clear explanation for why this is the case. When God created the very first two people on this planet, Adam and Eve, 
they had absolutely enough. They had enough peace. They had enough contentment. They had all of their physical needs met. They had enough, but then they bought into the lie that they didn't have enough. That God was somehow withholding something from them. And, and they bought into that lie that caused them to make the fateful decision to rebel against God. And ever since that day, humanity has struggled with not having enough. We don't have enough peace. We don't have enough contentment. We do not have enough happiness in life. We do not have enough security. And we struggle with having enough things that we want. We struggle because our job isn't good enough. Or our marriage isn't good enough. Or we don't have enough square footage in our home. We don't have enough horsepower under the hood of the car. Uh, We don't have enough compliments. We don't have enough likes on Instagram. We find ourselves all the time saying, well, we we just don't have enough. And we struggle as well with not being enough. We're not good enough. We're not smart enough. We're not good looking enough. We're not tall enough. We're not short enough. Not skinny enough. Not big enough. We don't have enough accomplishments. We don't have enough successes. We struggle all the time with enough. Throughout human history, this has been the case. Then 2,000 years ago, God sent into this world His Son, Jesus Christ, with this very simple message. You're not enough. You'll never be enough on your own. But my Son, Jesus Christ, is enough and has died on your behalf so that you can be enough. And in Christ, we're good enough and we can find enough contentment in life. And when we abandon ourselves completely to Him, that is when we finally find enough. Very early in the history of the church, uh, there was a group of people who came and they taught that Jesus wasn't enough. They said essentially something like this, Jesus gets your foot in the door of life, but after that it's up to you. Jesus gets in your foot in the door of salvation, but after that it's up to you to really be good enough for God. And Jesus gets in your, your foot in the door of finding contentment, but after that it's really up to you to be enough. Now these individuals came and they really focused on good works. And they said, you need to do these things, you need to follow these rules, and you need to celebrate these holy festivals, and you need to follow these rituals if you want to be good enough. These individuals we call legalists. They practice what's called legalism. Legalism says that, yes, Jesus gets your foot in the door, but after that, it's up to you. And if you really want to be happy in life, you better be good enough. If you want to be accepted by God, if you want to be loved by God, you better do these things. They are called legalists. The other side of what is essentially the same coin is called license. License says this. Legalism says you've got to be good enough. You've got to do certain things to be accepted by God. License says, okay, I think I'm accepted by God. I think that Jesus is enough for me to be accepted by God. I just don't think he's enough for me to be satisfied in life. 
And so you go after all these other things trying to fill the gap where Jesus isn't quite enough. Both of these are essentially the same thing. How do I find happiness in life? Am I good enough? Or can I find enough, uh, enough other things to fill the gap to make me happy in life? Now, my guess is all of you in here have struggled with both of these. And the reason I say that is because I struggle with both of these. Sometimes I think, you know, I'm, I'm just not good enough. God hasn't accepted me. Look at all the stuff I've done. I failed. I've got to make it up to God. I've got to somehow create my own righteousness. Other times, and more often than I do the first, I think, you know, Jesus just isn't enough. If everything else is stripped away, is that enough? Is Jesus enough? In the book of Colossians, Paul makes this argument that in both ways, Jesus is sufficient. In the passage that, um, that Stephen read earlier, Paul is emphasizing this point that Jesus is absolutely enough. Now, just to give you a little bit of background on the passage, Paul, who was this great missionary and leader in the early church, wrote this letter to a group of Christians in the ancient city of Colossae. Colossae was a small little town. It was located on the Lycus River in what is modern-day Turkey. It was not much of, it was sort of a fishing village, not much of a town. In fact, it was destroyed by an earthquake in 61 AD, and the citizens just abandoned it. it not any, there's not anything written about Colossae after that point, after 61 AD. However, Colossae has lived in our memory because sometime around 50 AD, a young man named Epaphras went into that city and he shared the good news of Jesus Christ. And a number of people in that town embraced the gospel and they formed a church. Epaphras then left and he joined up with Paul. Paul later was in prison and Paul hears that in the church in Colossae that this false teaching had invaded the church. That these people came to the church and they said, hey, we're really glad that you've embraced Jesus and that's great. We're, we're excited for you, except Jesus isn't quite enough. And there are these visions you need to have, and there are these holy festivals you need to, to observe. And they start talking about angels and all these supernatural beings. They said, if you really, really want to be accepted by God, if you really want fulfillment in life, then you need to do all these other, other things. Jesus is good, they said. He's just not enough to really make you righteous in the eyes of God. Paul at this point was in prison. Paul had never actually met these people. He was friends with them through his friends Epaphras, but his heart ate over what he heard, over this false teaching invading the church, and he was so concerned that they would buy into this teaching. So he wrote this letter. We call it the book of Colossians. And in the letter, over and over and over, he argues to the Colossians, Jesus is enough. It's not Jesus plus anything else. It's just Jesus. And he is enough. He is sufficient. In chapter 1, in the section that Stephen read, Paul says, hey, the first way that Jesus is sufficient, the first way that Jesus is enough 
is that Jesus is supreme. In fact, if you've got a paper Bible with you, there may even be a heading right above verse 15 that says, the supremacy of Christ. Jesus says, uh, Paul says, Jesus is enough because Jesus is supreme over everything. And there's basically three areas that Paul points out here where Jesus is supreme. He says, first of all, Jesus is supreme over all of creation. Look back at verse 15. He says, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Stop there. So the first reason that Jesus has supremacy over everything is that Jesus is the image of God. Now, in the New Testament, there are two ways this word image is used. One way is image means likeness. The first way that it's used is sometimes image means likeness of something else. Paul used the word that way in 1 Corinthians when he said, as, And just as we have been born the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. So Paul here says, hey, we have the likeness of Adam, the first man. In heaven, we will have the likeness of Jesus, the heavenly man. Here, that word means likeness. Let me illustrate it another way. I brought with me this morning a painting that all of you, I believe, will recognize. All right, how many of you paid attention in art class? What is this? The Mona Lisa, very smart group. I Give yourselves a hand. Very smart group this morning. That's right. Arguably the most famous painting in the world, right? It was painted by Leonardo da Vinci. Uh, it was completed in 1510 for a wealthy Florentine businessman in honor of the birth of his wife's child. It was later purchased by the king of France and down through history, it has become the most valuable, the most famous painting uh, that has ever existed. It today hangs in the Louvre in Paris. Uh, several years ago, Katie and I had the chance to go to the Louvre and actually see the real painting, kind of, sort of, because the crowds were so massive around it that we could not get close, but sort of above heads, through, I think, about 10 inches of bulletproof glass, we saw this painting hanging in the Louvre. It is impossible to put a price tag on this painting. It is so valuable. If you try to put a price tag on it, it would start at a billion dollars and go up from there. That's how valuable this painting is. Now, I've just told you how incredibly valuable this painting is, right? Okay, watch this. All right, none of you reacted. None of you are shocked that I just tore up a billion dollar painting. Why is that? Because this is not the painting. It is a likeness of the painting. It's not worth a billion dollars. It, it might be worth 50 cents. It is just a likeness of the real Mona Lisa. That is one way the word is used in Scripture. That is not the way Paul used it here in this particular passage. Likeness can, uh, image can mean likeness. It also can mean manifestation. And that's the way Paul used it in this passage. Jesus is the manifestation of God. Jesus is supreme over all of creation because he is the manifestation of God. When Jesus came into this world, he did not give up his godness at all. 
that he is the representation, he is the manifestation of God. If you want to know what God is like, read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Read the story of Jesus, and that tells us what God is like. The first reason that Jesus is supreme is because he is God. Secondly, Paul says, for in him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Here's what Paul was saying. When God created everything that we see, when you read the creation story in Genesis 1 and 2, Jesus was not seated next to God, just watching everything happen, happen, sitting idly by, saying, way to go, God. You know, that's pretty impressive. Milky Way, wow. You know, Jupiter, good job there. Jesus was not sitting and watching. Jesus was intimately involved in the creation process. Furthermore, this means that Jesus was never created by God. Understand that. That when Jesus came into this world 2,000 years ago, he was physically born into a world that he created at the beginning of time. That Jesus has always existed and created everything that we see. So the first reason that he is supreme over creation is that he is God. Secondly, he created all of creation. The third reason is, verse 17, he is before all things... And in him, all things hold together. In other words, Jesus is not just the creator of everything that we see. He is also the sustainer of everything that we see. Jesus is the glue that holds everything together. Jesus is the reason that the cosmos doesn't suddenly become chaos. Because he holds everything together. Picture it like this for a moment. Imagine there's this massive control room with all these panels and all these knobs and levers and dials. And and they're all labeled with different things. There's one dial that's labeled gravity. And that dial has to be set exactly right. If it goes a little bit too far to the left and, and gravity is lessened, we all float away. Goes to the right, we're all smushed by gravity. That dial has to be set just right. There's another dial that controls the earth's distance from the sun. That one has to be set just precisely in the right place. If it goes a little bit to the right and we go too close to the sun, we burn up. Goes to the left, we pull away from the sun, we all freeze to death. There's a whole other set of dials that control carbon dioxide and oxygen and nitrogen and all the elements in the atmosphere. All of those have to be set just right. If they get out of whack and there's not enough oxygen, we all suffocate. Or if they get out of whack and there's not enough carbon dioxide, all the plants die. And we die because we have no food. All these levers and all these dials, thousands of them, they all have to be set at exactly the right place. If anyone gets off, if any one of them goes too far to the right or too far to the left, if anyone is not set exactly right, we cease to exist. Who sits in the captain's chair at that control panel, making sure everything is right? Paul says, Jesus Christ. He holds everything together. 
I think most of the time we don't think about this. We take it for granted. We, we take for granted the tenuous nature of our existence. How often do you stop and say, God, thank you that I just took that breath. That air filled my lungs. Thank you that the cosmos has not just ripped apart all of a sudden. Thank you for keeping those asteroids from hitting our planet. And keeping us alive. I mean, why is it that all of those things are, are in perfect alignment? Why is it that we exist? Because Jesus is the, is the sustainer of all things. Paul begins his argument about the supremacy of Christ by saying he is supreme over creation. The second thing that he tells us is that Jesus is not only supreme over creation, but he is supreme over the church. Look at verse 18. It says, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile himself to all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So Paul here starts with the macro view of creation. Jesus is supreme over all of creation. And then he brings it down a level and says, and he is supreme over the body. Paul likes to use the analogy of the human body to describe the church. He is supreme over creation and he is supreme over the church as well. He is the head of the church. How is that? Why is that? Because he is the firstborn from among the dead. Jesus received a resurrected body. For lack of a better term, it was a perfect body he received. A physical body, just not subject to pain or decay. And that is the body that we are promised to receive. Why, can, why is it that we can believe in that? Why is it that we can hope in that? Why is it that we can cling to that? Because Jesus got the first one. Jesus led the way with his resurrected body. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul wrote this letter to the church at Corinth around 54 AD. And he talked about the resurrected body of Christ. In chapter 15, it's all about the resurrection. Here's what he wrote about Jesus. He said that Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And here's the key. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Here's what Paul was saying. 20 years after Jesus was raised from the dead, Paul said this, I, I'm writing to you about the resurrected body of Jesus Christ, and if you think I'm making it up, then fact check me, I dare you. Go and ask those who were, who were around, you will find them. There were over 500 who saw the resurrected Jesus. Some of them are dead, granted, but most are still alive. So if you think that the apostles somehow got together and made up this whole thing and we schemed to create a new religion for some reason that did not bring us any money and only brought us prison and death, why would we create a religion that would do that? But if you think somehow we got together 
and just created this religion for kicks, then go and ask these other people. And even if you're just a first-year graduate out of detective school, you can go and find someone who will tell you, absolutely, Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. We saw his resurrected body. And Paul here says Jesus is supreme over the church because he was the first in what all of us hope for and what all of us long for and look forward to when we will receive those same resurrected bodies, bodies that are not subject to decay, not subject to pain, not subject to cancer, not subject to illness, the flu, COVID, all of those things. We get that resurrected body. And Jesus was the first, which gives him supremacy over all of the church. The second thing that he says is that God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile himself to all things. Paul here goes back to creation and the events of Genesis 3 when mankind rebelled against God. And when Adam and Eve made that decision, the world broke. This is the reason we have disease in the world and tornadoes and hurricanes and all of these issues in the world. And here Paul is saying that Jesus Christ is the one who, when he returns, puts all that back together. He reconciles all of this broken creation to himself. So Paul is supreme over creation. Paul is supreme over the church. So he starts with the macro, supreme over everything. Supreme over the church. Then he brings it down another level. And he says, not only that, but he is supreme over sin. He is supreme over my sin. And he is supreme over your sin as well. Look at what Paul wrote. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish, and free from accusation, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Notice what he wrote here. At one time, you were alienated from God. In your pre-Christ state, You were enemies of God. Here's what Paul is saying. That you and I are born spiritually dead. And there is nothing that you and I can do on our own to fix our spiritual situation. Any more than a person who is dead lying on the gurney can get their heart beating again. Jesus Christ had to come along and to give us CPR and to resuscitate us and to give us life into our body. That's what Paul is saying here. Outside of Christ, you are alienated from God. Outside of Christ, you are enemies of God. And your enemies in your minds. Paul here is saying it goes beyond just that bad choice that you made, just that sinful choice you made. That, that our sinful state is woven into our DNA. That it's invaded every cell of our bodies. But that in Christ, we are made fully whole. Holy in His sight. Without blemish. Free from any accusation. 
from God or from anyone else, free from accusation. That is what happens when you are in Christ. Here's what this means. Jesus did not come just to make us better people. Jesus did not come and teach just a few moral lessons. Jesus did not come just to tweak us and to make us a little bit better people. Uh, if someone is dead on the table, uh, you can't put a Band-Aid on them and expect them to come back to life. If someone is, is diagnosed with terminal cancer, you can't give them a couple of Tylenol and say, okay, you're going to be okay. Here, take these. It took radical surgery. It took a radical transformation. And in Christ, that's exactly what we find, is that in Christ, we are now without blemish, that we are holy in His sight. So as we close, let me leave you with a couple of things. From the very beginning of time, there are two problems that humanity has faced. Everyone in humanity has faced these two issues. The first is we don't measure up. We're not good enough. And so we try religious acts. We try to be good enough. We try various rituals. If we can just do these things, then we'll be good enough to be accepted by God. We'll be good enough to, to get into heaven, whatever that version of heaven is. If we can just be good enough, then we can do it. But, but, but it's never enough. We know that it's never enough to, to be accepted by God. The second problem that we all have is finding enough contentment in life. It's finding enough happiness. It's finding enough satisfaction to, to be fully and finally satisfied. And in Colossians, Paul says the answer to both of those problems is found in Jesus Christ. That in Christ, we are made holy in God's sight. And that in Christ, as we abandon ourselves to Him, we find complete fulfillment so that when everything else is stripped away in life, we say, I still have enough because I have Jesus. It's not something that happens automatically. If you're not there, welcome to the club. I still struggle with that. However, we grow in Christ to the point that we're able to say, you know what, when this is taken away and when this is taken away, when I've lost all these things, I'm okay. I'm okay. Because I have Jesus Christ. And it's not Jesus plus anything. It's just Jesus. That's my hope. And I hope it's yours as well.